Our scripture reading today is John 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remains on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, there are there are two kinds of readers, at least. One type of reader opens a book and starts right there with the table of contents. They read through it all. They want to know where they're going. They flip through to the foreword and read through that. They want to scan every word on the introduction. And then, after all that, they'll get into chapter one. And then you have another kind of reader. They might as well rip out the first couple pages of the book and throw it in the trash can because all they want to do is get right to the action with chapter one because that's what they care about. Forget about all this introductory stuff. Well, for the past few weeks, we've been in what's called the, the prologue to the Gospel of John. And John's been really clear in his purpose of writing this book. He's written it so that the people who read it would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. But now, we're going to come to chapter 1, so to speak. The one who was the Word in the beginning, the one who is the light and the life of men. We're about to meet him. We are in... Um, well, we're, we're placed in the northeast of Israel, in possibly a remote area across the Jordan River from the rest of Israel. And we're meeting here an odd religious character who's known and famous for preaching some, uh, some stuff about the end-time kingdom of God coming, the kingdom that God had promised in the Old Testament. And he was saying it's right around the corner. And he was also well known for baptizing people in the river, which is why he got the name John the Baptist, a different John from the one who wrote the book 
we're reading. The events that are taking place here, they seem to be, perhaps, after Jesus has already been baptized and gone through the wilderness and been tempted, tempted by Satan, and now he is coming back to the area where he was. These verses kick off a day-by-day of one of the first weeks, perhaps the first week, of Jesus' public ministry and how he came to be revealed to Israel. And these verses are the testimony of John the Baptist. So for you second type of readers, you made it. We're here. But let's pray before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we know that um, nothing's possible without your Spirit working in us to make us understand rightly, to see our Savior, to know ourselves rightly because of it, um, and to know how to apply it. Not even to know how to apply it, to work in our hearts to apply it to our lives. So I pray that this morning your Spirit would be at work in our minds and in our hearts, that you would shape us and give us faith to believe who this person is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at three things. It's very simple. We're going to look at who John the Baptist is. We're going to look at who the coming one after him is. And we're going to look at what the coming one after him does. So let's start with John. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. Who does John say he is? We see in our passage, you might have noticed, that it kicks off with a delegation of Levites and priests sent from Jerusalem in the south all the way up to this region to find out who the John the Baptist is. You see, John the Baptist had made a pretty big splash. He drew swarms of crowds of people out to the wilderness to get baptized. He preached some fire and brimstone sermons and made some hot remarks about the religious leaders of his day. And the real thorn, though, in the side of these, this delegation, the real thorn here is that he's baptizing people. By what authority does this man have to be baptizing people and making them clean? So that's what they come to find out. And in a climate that was uh, feverish with hype about the end times and God bringing in his kingdom to earth, the delegation wondered, do you have to do with that? Are you somebody who is bringing in this kingdom? And we start by learning what John is not. He denies three identities right off the bat. The first, in verse 20, is he denies that he's the Messiah. That is, the one who is the anointed one, promised in the Old Testament, who would establish God's end-time kingdom and sit on David's throne. No, I'm not the Christ. I deny emphatically. He is not Elijah. Look at verse 21. Many Jews mistakenly thought, based off a prophecy in the Old Testament in Malachi, that the literal Elijah would descend from heaven, perhaps on more flaming chariots, and be there when God's kingdom was going to be ushered in. He said, no, I'm not literally Elijah come back to life. And then he also denies in verse 21 that he is the, the prophet. He's talking about a passage back in Deuteronomy that promised that there was a coming prophet like Moses who would speak the mouth, speak the words of God from his mouth, and he was expected to come near the time when God's kingdom would come in. And he says, no, 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 I am not any of those. So the delegation asks, then who are you? We can't just go back with who you're not. So now we come to verse 23. Look here, who is John? He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
as the prophet Isaiah said. The image here is that of a king who owns a large area of land, and as he's going through his land to come to a particular region, people are supposed to make the road ready for his chariots and his horses to come in. So they were supposed to remove obstacles. They were supposed to fill in all the potholes. They were supposed to lower mountains and raise up valleys so that the road for him to come in would be smooth and straight. Make it ready because the king's coming in to town. I can remember um, a while back, many years ago, um, in my hometown at one point, uh, the then president, George W. Bush, was going to drive through. He was driving through any number of series of towns. And so what came through before his bus? Well, a bunch of police cars going through and making sure that the road was clear so that when he drove through, there were no obstacles in his way. That's kind of like what's going on here. Do you see the role of John the Baptist? It was all all preparatory. John was content not to be the center of attention, not to be the one who everyone likes and wants to be like and wants to follow, but rather, John was content simply to be a voice. A voice telling people about someone else coming who is far more important than he was. And he was calling people to get their hearts and their lives ready for this Lord to come. So that's who he says he is. And it leads the delegation to ask, in verse 25, well then, why do you baptize? If you're neither Christ or Elijah the prophet, if you're one of these three, it'd be understandable. You'd have some kind of reason to be baptized, an authority to be baptizing. But if you're not, who gave you that authority? Not anybody's allowed to come up and baptize. Not anybody's allowed to come up and sprinkle water on people and have them made clean. But interestingly, even after they ask this question, He just keeps pointing them back to the one who's coming after him. He keeps drawing attention to the one who's going to be coming behind him, somebody who's far greater than he is. Well, what do we make of that? I think one thing, perhaps, that we can think of to apply to our lives as we consider these verses is to ask yourself, Christian, do you see Jesus as important as John the Baptist did? Do you recognize that he's someone so great, so life-changing, that he is what matters most in your life, more than you, more than your popularity, more than your success? Think, what would it look like to be a business person who understands the value of Jesus so much that furthering his kingdom is far more important to that person than just making money yourself? What would it look like to be a student who, who understands that the opinion of Jesus is so much more valuable than the opinion of anybody else. And so you care far more about making him known than you care about being uh, loved by other people. What does it look like to be a neighbor who um, can't help but sharing your faith with the person across the fence from you? Do you see how important this person is? Do you love him like that? Do you want, like John, to be a voice who points others to him? Because he's so much greater than we are, and his kingdom is so much more important than our own. Later on, John the Baptist would put it this way. He would say, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, and I must decrease. What would that look like for Jesus in your life to increase and for you to decrease? 
Um, so that's John the Baptist. That's who he is. But why was he so taken with this person who was going to come after him? What's so big about this coming one? Well, let's look at who he is. Who is this coming one after John the Baptist? He's certainly great. Do you see verse 27? John said, He's coming after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy of doing even the most demeaning chore, getting on my knees, unstrapping this man's sandals in order to start scrubbing his dirty feet. I'm not worthy of doing that. We see in verse 30. Again, he's great. This is not the first time we've heard John say this. Verse 30, John says of of the one coming after him, uh, this is the one of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, after me comes a man who ranks before me, who who is higher in the chain of command than I am. I'm just a private. This guy's the commander-in-chief. He's so much more important than me. He's the one who, later on we see in our passage, he's the one who has the Holy Spirit descend and remain on him, who's anointed with the Spirit, this one who is filled with God's Spirit to a degree that nobody else is. He's none other than the Lord himself, isn't he? Who John says, I've come to prepare the way for him. And the reason why he's so much greater, the reason why the one coming after John is so much more important is because he existed before John the Baptist. That's what John says in verse 30. This is the one I was telling you of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John's saying, there's going to be a man coming on the stage of human history after I do, on the timeline of human history, But this man is more important than I am. He ranks higher than I am. And the reason he ranks higher than I am is because he actually existed long before I ever did. Do you remember John 1, 1, the very first verses? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through this one. The one coming after John the Baptist, who he's testifying to, isn't just another human being born on the stage of human history. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who existed from eternity past, the word of God, the light of the world, the life of men, the one through whom grace and truth come. And this God now is going to take on a human body and a human soul himself, and he's coming to earth. That's what makes him so important, because he's actually God himself coming. And the identity of this person, God himself coming to earth with a human body and soul, His identity is Jesus. It's not Joe Israelite over there, or Bob Israelite over there, or Charlie Israelite over there. That's not him. That's not him. It's a man named Jesus. That's the one. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the one I was talking about. And skip a few verses down to verse 33 with me. 
We see verse 33, I myself didn't know him, John says. I I didn't know uh, that this person was the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize with water, God himself, he said to me that the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with water. That's the Messiah. And John's pointing back, do you remember when Jesus was baptized? How he came up uh, from the water, and after he came up from the water, uh, we read that the Spirit came down, descended like a dove, and remained on him. And John's saying, he points to Jesus, and he says to those around him, that's him. He's the one. He's the Messiah, and I know it, because God told me, if you see the Spirit descend and remain on him, that's the one. And I saw it. I can testify to it. I can put my hand on a Bible and promise Jesus is the coming one who's coming after me. This great one who was there with God the Father at the beginning of the world is now appearing on the pages of human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Which seems to me then to suggest that it's important for us as Christians that we frequently remind each other of who Jesus is and what he's done. Every day, we take our eyes off of the single most important person in the history of the world, the person who John was so eager to keep pointing to. He's coming. The one who's changed all of our lives, the one who's changed all of the course of human history. God himself come to earth. But day to day, don't we find that we take our, our mind off of Christ? We look to other things. We we. We fear other things, other people. We're in awe of other things. We put our confidence and hope in other things and other people instead of in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, one thing I think we can take from this is if Jesus is so important and he's so great, which he is, then let's continually remind ourselves of that. And not just of things that are good and things that are important, but of Jesus Christ, who is this important one. Um, I, I've heard it put this way, that we should, it should be uncommon for us as Christians to have conversations with one another that don't at some point touch on spiritual things. Yeah, you talk about sports. Yeah, you talk about the weather. Yeah, you talk about your kids. That's fine. That's good. It's important. But let's regularly in conversation remind each other of the most important one and the greatest one who ever was and who makes the biggest difference in our lives, Jesus Christ. It should be uncommon if we have conversations and that kind of thing doesn't ever come up. So that's who uh, the coming one is. Let's look now just for a second at what John says this coming one came to do. He describes what he came to do in two ways, but the overall point is this coming one comes to wash away the sins of the world. That's what he says he came to do. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. And John described this in two ways, and it'll bring out two different aspects of Jesus washing away our sins. The first way is in verse 29. We saw it before. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does the Bible call Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, many of you may be very familiar with this. You grew up in church, of course, of course. Let's remind ourselves for a minute. The Bible often uh, we'll use the term lamb or lambs because in the Old Testament, 
lambs were often used as a sacrifice. That is, they were often something which would die in the place of the one who came to offer it. Every single morning and every single evening, God had commanded the priest to offer a lamb and sacrifice it to the Lord. Well, what else might John have had in mind when he says lamb of God? Perhaps he had in mind Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that story? Abraham and Isaac go up to the mountain, and God told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. So Abraham dutifully obeys, and he walks up the mountain, straps his son down on an altar, and has the knife in hand raised, about to sacrifice his son, when God sends an angel, stop. And what does God do instead? He provides a lamb, a ram, a male sheep caught in the thickets. And God says, sacrifice that sheep in the place of this boy's life. Or maybe John had in mind the Passover. Do you remember when God's children were in slaves in Egypt and God was going to release them, but they were supposed to put blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house so that when God came through to strike down the firstborn, he wouldn't kill the firstborn of God's children. So again, a lamb is killed in the place of these people. But maybe John has in mind most clearly From Isaiah chapter 53, a passage that might be very familiar around the time of Good Friday, where Jesus is described like a lamb who's going to be led away to the slaughter because all we like sheep have gone astray. And on this lamb, Jesus, God is going to lay the iniquity of all his people, the transgression of him. So John the Baptist calls Jesus the lamb of God because Jesus, like these Old Testament lambs, he would lay down his life on the cross taking upon himself the sins of his people that he didn't commit so that they could be forgiven. And that's what it means when Jesus takes away the sin of the world. He takes the guilt away from his people. He takes the punishment away from his people so that when God looks on them, they are no longer guilty as people who have broken the law, but they're forgiven. Jesus takes away the sins of people. It says he actually he takes away the sins of the world. You might be wondering, well, is everybody is everybody forgiven? Is everybody saved? And I don't suspect it means that. John's too clear elsewhere that that's not the case for it to be the for for it mean uh, for it to mean that everybody is saved. John, who wrote the gospel, is clear about that. Not everybody received the light of the world, and Jesus himself is clear that not everybody receives him. So by the world, I think John means what he so often does elsewhere in the gospel, and that is the world, which means people from all sorts of different tribes and nations and languages, people who aren't just Jews, but all over the world, people all over the world who need to be rescued from their sin. That's what I think John means here. So, that's one thing. Jesus takes away the sins of the world by being a lamb of God, being killed on his people's behalf. He also takes away the sins of the world. Here's the second descriptor. This is the last one. He does it by baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33 again. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he, did you notice what it says? This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist just baptized with water. 
What does water do? Well, it makes your outward body clean. That's what it's meant to picture. When John would clean people with water, it was a picture. It was, it was, it was actually just water cleansing you from dirt on your body, like you give a good scrub down at the end of the day or wash your hands or something like that. But what John did was only a picture of what Jesus would actually do. Jesus would baptize not with water, but the Holy Spirit, who wouldn't just clean your body from dirt and grime that you got under your fingernails, but the Holy Spirit would actually clean your soul from the dirt and grime of sin on the inside. What John has in mind is a passage from the book of Ezekiel. This is what the book uh, of Ezekiel says from chapter 36. You might have it in your paper. Oh, here it is. Ezekiel promised today, this is the Lord speaking here in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. After Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, do you remember Pentecost? We read in the book of Acts that at one point, uh, tongues of fire came down and rested on all the disciples, and it was a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out from Jesus Christ in heaven. After he was raised from the dead, he poured out the Holy Spirit on all of the people who believed in him. And that Holy Spirit, as Ezekiel says, enters the hearts of his people and actually changes them from the inside out, renews them, makes them clean from their sin. Not just clean from the guilt of your sin, the punishment that you deserve, but actually changes you so that you are made more holy on the inside. That's what the Spirit does, and that's something that only Jesus Christ can do, that John just said, I'm just pointing to him. I want you to look at him. So what do we do with this? Well, it's important for us to recognize and to see that the one that John the Baptist was talking about, this coming one, Jesus, do you see how he is great enough to deal with what is actually our greatest problem? And that's sin. Any given day, we might feel like our greatest problem, as real as these problems are, and any given day, we might feel like our greatest problem is our coworker who is driving us nuts, our parents who won't get off our back, the, the struggle we're having to find a job or to be able to keep one, the, the, the bills that keep piling up on the table and you don't know how you're going to ever write a check to be able to pay them off, or the anxiety that's crippling you, or whatever it is, those are real problems. But the Bible's clear that our biggest problem, our greatest problem, is that this world that God made in the beginning rejected him. And we all are born people who don't receive him naturally. We are all people who would rather serve ourselves than submit to the God who made us. So, uh, first, let me, let me address people in this room who, you might be visiting here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, you've never, you've never, uh, I don't know, professed faith in Jesus Christ. Let me speak to you for, first to you in this room. John the Baptist call to make the road ready 
for the Lord to come. It's a call for us today, too. It wasn't just for the people back then. The one through whom the world was made came once during the John the Baptist time. We met him in these pages. But he also said that he's going to come again. And this time he's going to come in glory on the clouds of heaven and in a time when we do not expect. And he said he's going to separate those who receive him from those who do not receive him. And he calls us now, before he comes back, to make the road ready for him. And the way you do this is by repenting of your sin and calling on the name of Jesus, who this passage speaks to, who John the Baptist testifies to, and call on his name to be saved. Because he has the power to cleanse you from your sin. And he's the only one who can. We read in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. You might look for it elsewhere, but as we've seen here, it is only in the person of Jesus of Nazareth that you can find that salvation. And for my brothers and sisters in this room, for us, this is a reminder afresh of the good news. For you who might be guilt-wracked coming in here this morning, maybe you're, you're seeing, seeing this text and you're thinking, I don't I don't see Jesus as important as John did. I'm not sure I'm quite up to that par as John the Baptist did. I, I tend to love, I tend to love the praise of other people. I tend to want to be successful. I tend during the day, most of what I think about is how I can get ahead or I can get what I want done rather than seeking first God's kingdom. I I feel that and I wrestle with that on the inside. If you come in guilt-wracked by that, your guilt for that sin and that failure Jesus is taken away. If you're coming in and you feel this morning, you have guilt because you're not as good at witnessing to your neighbor as you'd like to be. I don't feel like I'm just a voice pointing other people to Jesus. I haven't shared the gospel in three years, or I get afraid when I do it, or I don't do it very well, and I, I don't know how to. And I, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm just not living up to that. You need to understand that the guilt for that sin, Jesus cleanses you of. Whatever other guilt you're bringing in here, whatever other sins you are walking to this room this week having, bringing in with you your failures and your inability to live up to what God has said we have to do, Jesus Christ is great enough and does clean you of the filth of that guilt. You will never be punished for that sin because Jesus Christ took the punishment for you. Remember that. And secondly, though, you also are reminded by this passage of even more cleansing than merely that. It would be hard if all that God promised us was to take away our guilt so that we could be forgiven, but then say we will live as sinners for the rest of eternity. But he doesn't promise that. This passage is a reminder that you are being remade, remade inwardly by the Holy Spirit. So if you're in this room and maybe you're, you are um, wrestling a ton with sin, you're tired of fighting it. This passage reminds us that your sin is not just taken away in the sense of you're no longer being punished by it, but you're still actually always going to be sinful for all of eternity. 
This is a reminder that you're actually being remade, renewed and remade inwardly in your heart so that it actually no longer exists in you. It's a fight you'll fight to the rest of your life, but God has promised, I am working this in you. So remember your baptism. You were baptized into the name of Jesus. You were sprinkled with water or maybe poured with water or maybe you were immersed in water. But remember your baptism. God has said that as surely as you have been baptized with water and water has been washed over your physical body, so surely you can know that the Holy Spirit has been poured into your hearts. And God's promised that what he has started, he will bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for your people in this room who are racked with guilt, who feel like they carry it on their shoulders like a ton of bricks, and it's an invisible backpack everywhere they go. Would you please, would you please give them faith to believe that Jesus Christ, this great one, was a lamb of God who was punished for them? And would you please remind them of their forgiveness? And would you give them faith to know that they are forgiven? For the Christian here, Lord, who is is wrestling with sin and about ready to give up, I pray, please, that you would encourage them by the reminder of this truth. Would you give them faith to know that your spirit does dwell in them, is cleaning them from the inside out to make them holy? Would you give them perseverance in their fight, please? Would you give them encouragement so that at times they can see, I really do feel God changing me. I really do feel God making me love him more and love myself less. And would you please help them to endure until the day when Christ returns and we will be totally remade. And lastly, God, I pray for any in this room who are hearing the call to make the road ready for for Christ, um, to make the road ready for him by repenting and believing in, in Jesus. I pray that you would give them that faith to do that. I pray you would make them see the beauty of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and how loving it was for him to come down and offer his life so that we could be saved. Oh, God. Would you wash them of their sin by giving them faith in Jesus? And I pray now that as we give and we worship, you would help us do with hearts that are very full and, and, uh, and full of gratitude. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.